0: In 1909, Leo Bakeland unveiled Bakelite, the world's first fully synthetic plastic, at a meeting of the New York chapter of the American Chemical Society. What natural material had Bakeland been trying to duplicate that led to Bakelite? If you know the answer to that question, you can text us at 514-800 or give us a call at 514-790-0800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society here in Montreal. And um, when I'm not doing that, trying to separate sense and nonsense for the public and our students, I chat here with you guys on Sunday afternoons. Ask a few questions, which uh, hopefully have interesting answers, and bring you up to date on some of the happenings in the world of science. So again, repeating my question for today, back in 1909, Leo Bakeland Uh, unveiled Bakelite, the world's first fully synthetic plastic, and that happened in New York at a chapter of the American Chemical Society meeting. What natural material was Bakeland trying to duplicate that led to Bakelite? Up until, oh, I'd say the 1950s, maybe even 1960s, many hospitals uh, had the practice of removing plants from patients' rooms at night. Why did they do this? Well, it was based on the erroneous belief that plants use up oxygen at night and deplete the amount of oxygen available for patients to breathe. Okay, Let's take a look at this. While it is true that plants use up oxygen at night through the process of respiration, the amount is insignificant in comparison to the amount of oxygen that is contained in air. Air, as you know, is... 80% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, roughly. I mean, less than 1% of other gases like like argon, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, etc. Anyway, a visitor who comes to see a patient in a hospital room will use up much more oxygen by breathing than any oxygen loss that is associated with plants in the room. The fact is that over a 24-hour period... Plants produce more oxygen through photosynthesis than they use up through respiration. Let me elaborate a little bit on these processes because they are important. During the day, plants carry out both of these processes. They photosynthesize, meaning that using the energy of light, they combine carbon dioxide, which is in the air, with water, usually comes from the ground, to produce glucose and oxygen. Glucose is the key to plant life, because through the process of respiration, which is the reverse of photosynthesis, it serves as the fuel needed to produce the energy that powers the plant's growth. Not only that, but glucose is also the raw material that is needed to make all of the materials of which the plant is constructed. When light is available, both photosynthesis and respiration go on, but at night, In the absence of light, there is no photosynthesis. Respiration, however, continues, and that does use up oxygen. But again, as I said, the amount used does not make a dent in the amount of oxygen that is present in the air. There could be a minor concern about cut flowers in a vase. Not because of depleting oxygen, but the water could in theory be a breeding ground for bacteria. However, no infections in hospitals have been linked to flowers. And there's no question that flowers can brighten a patient's mood. In fact, several studies have shown that after surgery, patients who have plants or flowers in their room require fewer painkillers, they have fewer complaints, and, in general, they recover faster. The greenery does not necessarily have to be in the room. Patients with windows that look out onto trees do better than when the windows face a concrete jungle. Here's another interesting point. Pictures of plants in the room have the same effect as actual plants. That's good to know, because you don't have to water them, you don't have to take care of them. There's another reason people think plants are a good idea. Purification of the air. Unfortunately, Well, that just isn't the case. But that story takes us back to the 1980s, when a researcher with NASA carried out some studies to investigate methods of removing volatile organic compounds, such as formaldehyde or benzene, from the air. Why was NASA carrying out such research? Because there was concern that in the enclosed environment of a space capsule, some of the plastics used might outgas some troublesome compounds. The researcher did manage plants absorb some of these from the air, but there's a catch here. The catch is that the studies were done in a sealed room, and the size of a about the size of a space capsule, and there was no air circulation. When similar studies were carried out under realistic conditions, such as would be encountered in a home, there was no significant removal of uh, any air pollutant. If you want to know about how many plants you would need in order to purify the air in a room to any significant extent, you'd essentially have to fill the room with plants, leaving no space for any occupants. If there's a concern about volatile organic compounds, a bag of activated charcoal would rise to the occasion. These work really well for any odor, as well as for odorless compounds that are released by molds. Charcoal has this amazing ability to bind molecules to its surface, and activated charcoal or activated carbon, as it's sometimes called, has a huge surface area because each grain is permeated with microscopic tunnels, so that just increases vastly the surface area. Once the charcoal becomes saturated with the substances it has absorbed, it ceases to be active, but here's the good news. It can be reactivated just by placing it outdoors in the sun for a few hours. The adsorbed materials will be released, and the cargo is then ready to pick up another cargo. Notice the term that I use is adsorbed, A-D, not absorbed, A-B. Absorb, with the B, is what a sponge does to water. Adsorb is a surface phenomenon. When you're picking up nails with a magnet, for example, the nails are adsorbed onto the surface of the magnet. Well, charcoal is an excellent adsorbing agent. Various compounds will stick to the surface of the material, and the larger that surface is, the better it is at adsorbing. And if you just want to have a mental picture, try a very, very small part of a large surface area, think of it this way. Imagine you have a cube in front of you. That cube, of course, has six surfaces. Now, cut that cube in half. What you have done is created two new surfaces. So you have surface area. Cut each of those halves in half again. You have again increased the surface area. Keep doing this until you have smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller particles, and obviously you have increased the surface area tremendously. Now, if you take one of those small particles and you bore holes into it, then, of course, each of those increases the surface area. So this is what we are talking about with activated uh, uh, carbon. It is very good at, at absorbing smells in the room, at absorbing the non-odiferous compounds that are given off by molds. It is really an excellent material. So if you are worried about uh, having uh, nasty smells in a room, Don't rely on plants to pick up those smells. You have a much better chance by using bags of charcoal. And those are available these days. Of course, everything is available on Amazon, and you can buy a couple of bags of uh, activated charcoal for relatively little money, and that will go a long way towards purifying air. As far as plants go, well, enjoy the greenery because that has a calming effect. As I said, in hospitals, people do better with plants in the room. Don't worry about oxygen depletion, but don't think that the plants are going to purify the air. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Science, you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Someone has suggested in a text message that uh, Leo Bakeland was trying to mimic mica when he discovered Bakelite. No, that is not what he was trying to do. So uh, the question is still out there. When Leo Bakeland introduced the world's first synthetic plastic, 1909, meeting of the American Chemical Society in New York, what had he been trying to mimic? What natural product that led to the discovery of uh, of Bakelite? You can give us a call at 514 790 Text us at 514 And obviously, you can also... Uh ask questions about science. Uh, it doesn't have to deal with the question that I asked. If anything has uh, crossed your mind, uh, go ahead and uh, get it out there. And f- those of you who are in the Montreal area, <clears throat> tomorrow I'll be at the Eleanor London Public Library at 2 o'clock. And the topic for tomorrow is processed food. That's for those of you who are in the Montreal area. For those of you who are listening to us in New Zealand and in Australia, as I know many of you do, you still have time to jump on a plane and get here for 2 o'clock tomorrow to listen to my talk on processed foods. Okay, Uh, let's get down to some other interesting uh, matters at hand. A lot of negative news about sugar over the last few years, and I've uh, uh, discussed this before, I've said many times, that if there were one practice that we could cut out in North America that would lead to the greatest good in terms of health, it would be to eliminate soft drinks, whether they're sugary or artificially sweetened. And uh, there's more and more research that is coming out that is backing up that idea. In fact, we have just had a paper published uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a, a very, very interesting uh, uh, paper. And uh, it uh, describes how the consumption of sugary beverages leads to early death. That's basically what this paper says. It's a very interesting uh, uh, study that was um, uh, carried out uh, in Europe, in several countries actually, the subjects were in several countries. And uh, the study linked also the consumption, whether it was artificially sweetened or regular soda consumption, to to early death. And it was a large study, uh, one of the largest of its kind, because it tracked over 450,000 men and women in 10 countries across Europe. And what it found was that the consumption of two or more glasses of artificially sweetened soft drinks a day was positively associated with death from circulatory disease. And for sugar-sweetened soft drinks, one or more glasses a day associated with death from digestive disease, including disease of the liver, the appendix, the pancreas, and the intestine. Now, one always has to be careful about uh, conclusions from such studies because in many cases, in fact, generally in all cases, the information is garnered uh, from surveys. And people are given surveys and they are asked to tick off what they have eaten, how much they have eaten or consumed over the last 24 hours. Now, these are notoriously inaccurate Why? Because human memory is fallible. We don't remember exactly how much we ate, and we're not very good at describing amounts. And also, it turns out that that people aren't honest. Now, that can be uh, inadvertent. Uh, People know what they should have eaten, and they know what they did eat. And uh, we find that on these surveys that people overestimate the healthy foods that they perceive to be healthy, you know, things like broccoli and fruits and vegetables, and they underestimate the sugar and the soft drinks uh, and desserts that they they consume. And there have been many studies to show that this, in fact, is, is true. Uh, when you take a look at um, some of these surveys and ask people what their weight is and their BMI, body mass index, is calculated and then they look at the uh, reports of the surveys, what they find, what the researchers find, is that it is impossible for people to be eating the diet that they report eating and have the weight that they have. It just is not calorically possible. So that's why one has to be very careful uh, about um, paying attention to these surveys. But still, when you're talking about a study that... um, records data from 450,000 people, uh, it does become somewhat meaningful. And there is certainly no downside to cutting out sugary beverages. And if this isn't convincing enough, we had another study that came out in July. And uh, that was in the British Medical Journal, again, a highly respected journal. And it found the link between sugar drinks and cancer. And uh, again, this is not the first time that this was found. And this also was a very significant study because it involved 101,000 healthy French adults, 21% men, 79% women, average age of 42. And they were followed for years, for about nine years. At the beginning of the study, they filled out questionnaires about their health status. And if anyone had any kind of health problem, they were not included in the study And, of course, they also filled out reports about what they ate. And they were followed for nine years, and um, many cases of cancer obviously uh, cropped up in 101,000 people. And it turned out that the ones who had the highest consumption of sugary drinks were the ones who were more likely to come down with this uh, dreadful uh, disease. So, again... uh, there's no good to be had from consuming sugary beverages other than I suppose the the taste, and I you know I, I don't say never. I mean I, you know, uh, I must say that uh, occasionally when I uh, have a hamburger in a r- restaurant, I'll have a soft drink with it or a pizza it seems to go t- together, but that's a rare occasion. There are many people, however, who drink soft drinks on a regular basis who will drink two or three every day and some 10 or 12 for example president trump he drinks by his own admission over eight diet drinks a day now whether or not this has any effect on him it's hard to know because statistics apply to populations it's hard to apply them to individuals but it isn't doing him any good so what's the advice here cut down on sugary soft drinks. Replace them with water, especially with kids. And uh, most schools now, of course, are shying away from uh, having sugary beverages. But unfortunately, fruit juice also falls into the category of sugary beverage. And uh, in the study that I just mentioned, where sugary drinks were linked to cancer, uh, independently, soft drinks were linked to cancer and... Fruit juices were linked to cancer. So we do have evidence that it's the sugar that is in there. So sugary beverages, whether they're, quote, natural, that is, you know, juices, or whether they are found in a bottle that is produced by Coca-Cola or one of the other large companies, uh, have to be consumed in in moderation. And I'm still looking for the answer to my question. Leo Bakeland, a Belgian chemist, came to the U.S., made an important discovery. That discovery was the world's first synthetic plastic, which in all modesty he called Bakelite, and he introduced it in 1909 at a meeting of the American Chemical Society in New York. But how did this discovery come about? It came about because he was actually trying to mimic a natural material. That's my question. What is the natural material that Leo Bakeland was trying to mimic? And world's first synthetic plastic, totally synthetic plastic, Bakelite, uh, found numerous uses, from billiard balls to to, uh, gentlemen's shirt collars to the early telephones, those nice black telephones and jewelry, all kinds of things made of Bakelite. What was he trying to mimic? Okay, we have to take a break here. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We will be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Somebody was asking uh, via text message uh, why I keep referring to sugary beverages. Uh, What about the diet drinks? The study that I mentioned, and I hope I made clear, uh, that was recently published, uh, showed that it doesn't matter if it's sugary or a diet beverage. The study linked all soda consumption to an early death. I know it is hard to think of a reason why that would be because the artificial sweeteners that are used, uh, aspartame, sucralose, etc., have been extensively tested and have been shown to be safe. So I think what this may come down to is that drinking soft drinks, whether they are sugary or diet drinks, is a marker for an unhealthy lifestyle. And that people who drink a lot of these beverages uh, also engage in other unhealthy behaviors. Now, of course, in studies such as this, the researchers try to control uh, for factors such as smoking and obesity, but you can't control perfectly. So, I think that there's a good bet that people who consume a lot of sodas uh, also have very, very poor diets. And that may be the explanation. But in any case, there's no benefit to drinking either sugary or uh, diet drinks. Now, in response to my question, a couple of text messages, uh, one suggesting that Leo Bakeland was trying to mimic bone. That is not correct. Another one says tooth enamel. That wasn't correct either. Another one suggests uh, ivory. No, that is not so either. But there's an interesting story about ivory because in the 1800s, uh, there was a short supply of ivory. And uh, that was particularly troublesome for the manufacturers of billiard balls because they were made of ivory. And a company called the Phelan and Colander Company in the U.S. offered a prize of $10,000 to anyone who could develop an ivory substitute that could be used in billiard balls. And uh, John Wesley Hyatt, an American inventor, uh, saw this ad, and he thought he could solve the problem. And eventually, he invented a material called celluloid, uh, which was made of cellulose nitrate. Now, cellulose nitrate, unfortunately, is very, very flammable. And... uh, It was uh, a great surprise to some of the people who were playing with these newfangled billiard balls that when they crashed into each other, uh, they would make a noise, something like a gunshot. And supposedly there's a story even that uh, uh, at one point when these uh, uh, billiard balls had been introduced in a saloon and uh, one struck the other, all of a sudden everyone drew their guns. This was in the 1800s, of course, in uh, in the U.S., thinking that there was a gunfight uh, going on. Uh, But uh, Leo Bakeland was, in fact, not trying to uh, find a substitute for uh, ivory. Okay, let's go to the lines, because maybe John has an answer. Hi, John. No, sir, you corrected uh, my mind on that. I was going to suggest ivory. I have one question for you, though. Yeah. What is the chemical agent in poison ivy? Uh, It's a, a compound called urushiol. Urushiol, and it's found in poison ivy. It's found in poison oak. That's right. And uh, believe it or not, not everyone is sensitive to it. Uh, About 70% of the population is sensitive to it, but 30% of the population can touch uh, poison ivy without having a problem. So it's Urushiol. That's the uh, active agent. Two two double A's for you, sir. Okay. Bye. Thank you. All right. Let's see. Maybe Ivan has an answer. Hey, Ivan. Ivan? I called you a few weeks ago. Yes, sir. Ivan Gombos. Yes, Ivan. Do you okay. have an answer? I think the answer is shellac. Yes, it is. Yeah, very, yeah. very good. It is shellac. Yeah, shellac used to be made from some insect or some sort. Yes, it was made from an insect, and but you know why it was important to find a substitute for it. Uh, well, he wanted to make money. I guess it was. A big well, problem. he wanted to make money, but but yeah. I mean, shellac uh, was important for what reason? Why would you make uh, money from a substitute for shellac? I don't know. Okay. Well, anyway, you you got the idea, shellac. That's very good. It's uh, actually the resinous secretion of a bug and a beetle called lacifer lacca. And when you heat this resin, uh, you scrape it off a tree, and when you heat it, it can be used for varnish-protecting wood. But that was not the reason that Bakeland was interested. Uh, The electrical age had been introduced in the late okay. and uh, shellac turned out to be an excellent uh, insulating material um, but it was in short supply so there was a need to find something that could replace it and that's what Bakeland was after okay. and he discovered that uh, mixing phenol and formaldehyde under high pressure and high temperature uh, he was able to make this material that he called bakelite oh, okay. and um so that's the story it was a replacement for shellac, shellac. very very good ivan okay impressive okay All right. <laughs> thanks um Bakelite, of course, became extremely popular, as I mentioned earlier. It was used in all kinds of uh, things, from plates to to, uh, uh, jewelry. And some of the early jewelry really, really is uh, beautiful. I have a few uh, collectibles, uh, Bakelite collectibles, including a radio. And some of the early Bakelite radios are very, very valuable. The ones that uh, are green and yellow and orange color, uh, mine is not that. Mine is sort of an ivory color, so it's not all that valuable, but... uh, uh, some of the radios that were made in the 1910s, uh, 1920s, beautifully colored uh, Bakelite. If you have uh, one of those, uh, you're sitting on something that is indeed uh, uh, quite valuable. All right, so we had an answer to that um, that question. Uh, I know that you guys like to answer questions, so why not uh, try another one? What is a physician doing when he or she swears to read to revere his medical teachers, respect patient privacy, keep patients from harm, never give a lethal drug, never cause an abortion, and never have sex with patients. What is a physician doing when he or she swears to all of those things? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call. It's 514-790-0800. You can also text your messages uh, to 514-800 someone uh, i guess two people texted me and got bakelite uh, right so uh, now all of you know about the importance of uh, of bakelite okay let's uh, switch uh, topics a little bit here i want to tell you a little bit about processed cheese why do we care about processed cheese because these days there's you know uh, so much talk about um, uh processed foods and their negative properties. And I've been asked many times about, you know, processed cheese and what uh, it is. Uh, processed cheese is sometimes called American cheese, uh, Well, you know, it's kind of plasticky. But don't start conjuring up images of of cheesemakers grinding up recycled plastic bottles. A plastic is simply any material that can be molded into desired shape, and uh, processed cheese fits that definition. It was back in 1916 that cheese merchant J.L. Kraft Plagued by complaints of inconsistent quality, hatched a scheme to mix a variety of cheeses, blend them with water to produce a uniform product. For a smooth consistency, Kraft had to devise a method to prevent the fat, protein, and water from separating. Sodium monohydrogen phosphate turned out to be an ideal emulsifier and ensured that people who like their cheeseburgers can count on a slice that will always taste the same and melt in a uniform fashion. And yes, processed cheese does melt, as anyone who has ever made a grilled cheese sandwich can attest. That is contrary to the implication of a widely circulating video portraying processed cheese as some sort of satanic product because it does not melt in the heat of a flame. One viewer was prompted to wonder if this is why, quote, cancer is on the rise, and another asked why Kraft puts plastic in his cheese. No, there is no plastic, but there are emulsifiers that bind the cheese's components tightly and do not lose their hold with a sudden increase in temperature. They do, however, let go with prolonged heating at a lower temperature. There's nothing devilish here, just some clever chemistry. Nutritionally, processed cheese is comparable to whatever cheese was used to make it, usually cheddar. It does tend to be higher in sodium, but there isn't any risk to be had from processed cheese except to the palate. Well, I shouldn't say any. I mean, obviously, we've talked often about sodium consumption. You don't want to overdo that, and processed cheese is is, uh, heavy in sodium. But it's not a product from hell. And uh, it does contain fat, of course, but all cheese contains fat. I wouldn't uh, call uh, American cheese, you know, plastic uh, because that sort of you know, denigrates it. Uh, Occasionally, it's fine. I I would say that I enjoy a nice piece of real cheddar cheese or a piece of Emmental or brie more than the processed cheese, but it isn't being delivered from hell. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Okay, let's go down to Vermont and hear from Steve. Steve. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Go ahead. The Hippocratic oath. Yes, of course. It was Hippocratic oath. I, I think that was that was too easy a question, right? Uh, anyway, Hippocrates lived uh, about four hundred sixty BC to three seventy seven BC, and he dismissed ancient beliefs involving supernatural origin of disease. Uh, to him, it was the imbalance of blood and black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm that was the problem. And, uh, health and disease, he said, were natural phenomena and no gods need to apply. And, uh, th- this is really the origin of the Hippocratic Oath and, uh, doctors, uh, in most uh, schools no longer swear the Hippocratic Oath, but but uh, they should abide by it uh, because it's obvious that uh, you know you should never give a lethal drug and uh, never have sex with patients, never cause an abortion. That, of course, is a very, very controversial uh, thing. Uh, so, yes, the answer to that question was the Hippocratic Oath. And an interesting question texted in about what is government cheese? Well, we don't have government cheese in Canada, but uh, in the US, uh, uh, processed cheese that was given out to welfare recipients uh, very often through food stamp programs, uh, I think it was introduced by Reagan, although I'm not sure about that. Uh, that was known as uh, government cheese. Okay, let me go to uh, Esther. Hi, Esther. Hi. Hi. What's up? Uh, no, I was going to give the same answer. That's it. Oh, were you? So you knew about Hippocrates? Yeah. 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 Hippocrates is a very interesting guy because, of course, he had some great ideas. Uh, Supposedly, he introduced the notion that food is medicine, although I've never been able to find any real record that he said that, but he may have said that. Uh, But he also thought that uh, pigeon droppings could cure baldness. And uh, that, of course, is not scientific. Luckily, you didn't have to eat the pigeon droppings. You rubbed them on the bald head. So Hippocrates, you know, had some positive ideas, but uh, uh, he wasn't totally clear about uh, how the human body worked. Anyway, so thanks for calling. And yes, you're right, as many others were. We're talking about the Hippocratic uh, uh, Oath. Okay, uh, let me... uh, i uh, tell you uh, a little bit here uh, about bloodletting. Because these days you go to a, a, a scientific or medical conference and you're likely to hear the expression evidence-based science or evidence-based medicine frequently. The number of papers published each year that feature these keywords has increased dramatically since the early 1990s when that expression was first introduced and medical school students are being infused with the importance of practicing evidence-based medicine. Patients rightly expect that treatments they receive should be evidence-based. That sounds like a self-evident truth. After all, who would want to offer or receive any treatment that is not based on evidence that works? But here is the problem. Just what constitutes evidence? Bloodletting went on for some 3,000 years before it fell by the wayside in the 19th century. Surely physicians, starting with ancient Egyptians, would not have carried on with this process if they didn't think there was evidence that it was effective. Surely George Washington's doctors must have thought there was evidence that their bloodletting would help their illustrious patient recover even as they were seeing him wilt away. So what sort of evidence led to the 3,000-year-long practice of what amounts to nonsense. Originally, there was plausibility. The ancients thought that illness occurred when evil spirits infiltrated the body and a cure could be effected if the spirits were released. In their concept of health and disease, it made sense that removing blood would remove the spirits. The Greeks had a different concept. They thought blood was created and then used up, and any excess produced would stagnate and cause illness. They also believed that a humoral balance between blood, phlegm, black bile determined health with blood being the dominant humor. And this was part of Hippocrates' belief, as I mentioned earlier. If there was an illness, the physician would either remove excess blood or induce vomiting or urination to rebalance the body's humors. Certainly, sometimes bloodletting worked, After the procedure, patients improved. As we now know, not because of the procedure, but in spite of it. Physicians who saw their patients improve were convinced it was because of the bloodletting. The truth is that many diseases resolve with time, and if some procedure coincides with the resolution, it gets the credit. And then, of course, there is the placebo effect. If a patient believes that removing some blood is curative is likely to feel better after the procedure. In some cases, bloodletting may actually have had a positive physiological effect. High blood pressure could have been temporarily reduced, and if someone suffered from iron overload, that is hemochromatosis, there could have been improvement. Indeed today, the treatment for hemochromatosis is blood donation. There's also wishful thinking on part of the observer, Physicians' wishful thinking undoubtedly led to subjective observations of improvement when objectively there was no such effect. It wasn't until the 17th century that bloodletting was questioned. Baptista van Helmont actually proposed that a couple of hundred patients be divided into two groups. He would treat one without bloodletting and leave the other group to the vials of the physicians who would drain them of their blood. We shall see how many funerals both of us shall have, Van Halmon said. Whether the trial was actually carried out or not is unknown. But by the early 1800s, several such experiments formed, slaying the dragon of bloodletting with the early versions of randomized trials, the current heart of evidence-based medicine. But uh, as you know... Uh, there's a lot of non-evidence-based medicine that is being practiced today. Uh, There are charlatans galore out there uh, who ply various kinds of herbal remedies, um, ridiculous things in order to try to promote their uh, uh, procedures. Believe it or not, I just sent for an item, which I recently received, uh, which is a belly button massager. A belly button massager. I spent about $70 uh, on this because I just wanted to see what the claim is, that it is a cure for virtually anything that ails you. Uh, It is manufactured by some guy in British Columbia. I now have it. Uh, I must say haven't tried it. Uh, It basically is a a piece of wood. It kind of looks like a cross uh, so that you can twist it. And uh, it has a little rubbery device on it, uh, like a rubber thimble that you put into your belly button, and you twist this thing around, and it is supposed to uh, massage your belly button, and that has all kinds of uh, supposedly therapeutic effects. Well, I don't think I really have to try this to know that it's nonsense, uh, because uh, it is just not plausible, So again, you know, I mentioned earlier that that, uh, uh, in science often we just look at plausibility when we know enough about how the body works and how the world works so that we can have a pretty good idea, we can have a guess at what can be possible and what not. And I don't think that there's any chance that massaging the belly button is going to have any uh, cure for any kind of a a disease. But uh, uh, I will give it a try. Uh, you know, to see what what it can do. It might uh, actually be a pleasant uh, feeling. And I'll let you know about this. I I think I will probably write a column on on, uh, this uh, deserving object. Anyway, we are running out of time. Let me just remind you, for those of you who are in the Montreal area, that tomorrow at 2 o'clock, I'll be at the Eleanor London Public Library uh, in Cote Saint Luke discussing processed foods, And, of course, we'll be back here with you, same time, same station, next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.